0: That Matter Podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, here to talk about the abortion debate in evangelical circles. The abortion debate in evangelical circles. I think just about all my examples are pulling from Southern Baptist sources because I've had my mind focused a lot on Southern Baptist stuff this week, given the convention was last week and a lot of the reaction and fallout from it is also this week. In fact, there's a lot of things I wanted to talk about that I don't know if I will be able to talk about concerning the Southern Baptist because I really need to get to and want to get to Uh, other things that are happening out there. In fact, uh, the PCA General Assembly is meeting right now. Uh, We have the uh, Christian Reformed Church met last week, made some important decisions. Uh, I know there's some uh, things going on in Lutheran denominations uh, as well, and and I want to get to this stuff. And I know Southern Baptists, it's kind of the big gorilla, it's the big denomination, but there's other denominations that are also very important. And so uh, I will get to those, uh, but I, I think I need to do one or two more shows that are at least focused in part on Southern Baptists. This one has a broader reach. I think this is uh, affecting more than just the Southern Baptist, but a lot of the examples I'm going to pull from are going to be SBC. But uh, the abortion debate, of course, has changed over the last few years, especially in reaction to the social justice movement. And I think, broadly speaking, what I'd say is there's been a watering down of pro-life. I remember when I was at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2000, it was my ethics class, so I think this was 2000 and. 15 if I'm not mistaken it was around that time I remember speaking to my ethics professor and he told me that he noticed a huge change in students at and this was at that time that they had uh at at that time in which he was telling me they become less pro-life than they were before and I said wait what do you mean they're less pro-life I thought everyone who came here as I was naive <laughs> I was really naive uh, I remember, I remember other stories of me sitting in class and hearing like Darwinian evolution stuff. And I, I was like, wait a minute, whoa, I thought we none of us believe that. And then I, I realize a lot more now. But anyway, on this issue, I said, what do you mean not as pro-life? And I said, yeah, of course, they're pro-life. I thought everyone was pro-life here. And he said, well, it's not that they couldn't, they wouldn't say that they're not, they wouldn't tell you they're not pro-life necessarily. But they're just not it doesn't motivate them, and it's not really a core. They don't think about it much. It's not a conviction that they hold. It's more of something maybe by default that they've inherited, and uh, and this didn't characterize all the students. He said that he's he's seen a gradual progression or a regression uh, in a, just a drop off of support. They're less motivated, less uh, just. It's less important to them. And I thought, well, that's not good to hear. And Uh, And and of course, I'm sure now it's probably even um, more so that way, Uh, even though I I hear from a lot of pro-life organizations that we're the pro-life generation. This is the generation that's going to end abortion. Um, And and I think the ultrasound has made a huge difference in showing people you have a life inside you. I think, and this is just me, I, I don't have stats in front of me on this point. I actually wasn't expecting to open the show with this, but I think that Uh, there's a lot more callousness also in the current generation than there ever has been. Uh, Callousness towards violence, towards human worth. And so I I think we're actually approaching a point where it's going to be interesting because you're going to have, I think, more the lie before and the lie even still to some extent is that it's not a child, it's not a human being. But I think we might be approaching a new uh, paradigm in which it doesn't matter if it's not a human being. In other words, you can convince someone that's a human being and it won't make a huge difference to them. Okay, yeah, it's a human being. So what? Why does that mean I shouldn't be able to end the life of this human being? Now, that's not uh, certainly at this point, I think, across the board, and certainly that's not something I think most people would say that they they would support. But, um, but if what my ethics professor told me is true, and uh, if just my, by my own observations, what I'm seeing uh, ge- just generally in, in culture, the callousness that people have towards human life in general, uh, e- even just the violence on uh, movie screens and stuff, I mean, shows me that. Uh, I remember I was sitting in, in what 2003. I don't remember when it was the first Lord of the Rings come out. I was sitting in the theater, and I remember there was there's a decapitation scene, and the whole audience gasped. Well however many years it was, that The Hobbit came out, and there was a decapitation scene, which was even more gruesome, and the audience laughed. I mean, that's what I'm talking about with the callousness, the coarseness of society. Anyways, I want to talk about the pro-life stuff. Uh, I What I've seen, broadly speaking, I think, in evangelical circles is exactly what that ethics professor told me. Uh, there seems to be a dilution of the pro-life movement by inserting other causes, quality of life concerns into the category of murder, euthanasia, ending life. Uh, so eating cheeseburgers and smoking and uh, racial issues and uh, all kinds of other things end up being packed into, well, those are pro-life concerns as well. And and, and so that's happening. You have the dilution of pro-life. And, and I think there's probably various motivations. I, I can't help but think that a lot of this has to do with trying to appeal to the left or trying to import the left, either way, trying to uh, somehow create an alliance or connection with people that are more on the socialist side so that we can then say, uh, look at them and say, well, you have something in common with us, we can recruit you to our side, and we'll give you some recruits because uh, you know we believe that some of your causes are important as well, and uh, in fact, sometimes just as important. So that's one of the things, one of the areas that I see a dilution going on and I think this is a way to try to get younger people motivated for pro life. You know, categorizing it as a social justice concern. Hey, pro life social justice. So uh, you're all motivated and marching in the streets for race, uh, for anti-racism, and for uh, for for you know the Me Too movement uh, and maybe the environment and other issues. Why don't you come join us? We march as well for the pro life cause. Uh, so then you have uh, the the other thing that's happening, the other dynamic, and I'll show you videos to back all this up. The other dynamic is um, you have a you have other issues. So, like I said, there's all these other issues bringing being brought in under the pro-life umbrella. But it's not just that they're bringing brought under the pro-life umbrella; it's that there's a moral equivalency between them and pro-life. That's the second thing. So, uh, you could say police shootings are just as important. Uh, trying to rectify uh, the problems pertaining to police shootings as the legalized killing of babies in the womb at clinics by doctors uh, and women who choose to go and have these procedures. You could say that those two things are morally equivalent somehow. Uh, and and that's, I think, another way. And, and in some ways, we might have done this to ourselves a little bit. I think the pro-life movement, at least since I've been around, has really liked to make the connection that uh, they're just like the, they're just like the abolitionists of the uh, 18th or, or 19th century, and um, and I could probably do a whole episode on why I think that's probably not the best road to go down. Uh, actually, I, I when I've debated this issue publicly, I've um, I've made the, con- the Nazi Germany connection more because uh, I think that's a more accurate apples to apples comparison. But I, I think there's this hunger to try to hitch our wagon to the civil rights movement and to anti-slavery. And that will give us moral legitimacy or something, or the left will see, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're the, and of course the left doesn't really usually see things that way. So it doesn't usually work. But I think what we've done is we've also um, kind of diluted that issue because uh, as, as much as uh, we wouldn't want slavery and we want personal responsibility and, and all of that. And, and we, Um, we we don't like what happened in in the 19th century, that still isn't the legalized murder of human beings. And now I think there's all these other current social justice concerns that are being imported into pro-life. And so it's hard to know how do you respond to that when we've already been making, uh, we've been kind of opening the door for that to some extent. And so, Uh, so anyway, you, you have that going on where these issues are morally equivalent. And then you have a third issue going on right now. And that's the issue of whether or not, uh, the woman or the mother is culpable if she opts for an abortion. So, um, that all of that, those are the three, and there's probably more that you could add to this list, you know. Exceptions for rape and uh, incest and laws, that kind of thing. But these are the three big ones in my mind. I want to show you, I just want to survey the landscape here for everyone. I want to show you some um, examples of this from Evangelical World uh, so you know what I'm talking about. First, here's what happened. Here's what's happening actually right now. But this is uh, this morning at the Supreme Court building as uh, people are getting ready for what uh, they thought that today might be the day that a decision is rendered on the Dobbs case. Now, of course, a decision was not rendered on the Dobbs case today, and I guess it would probably be next Monday when they do this, but uh, the, the issue that was decided, uh, one of the issues at least today, was on uh, gun, uh, gun rights in New York. And uh, without getting into a huge rabbit trail on this, I'm probably in the way big minority on this particular one, uh as a conservative and i th- i think though that i'm more paleo conservative on this uh i think uh, more constitutional i just don't believe i don't think incorporation is uh was ever right the incorporation doctrine and so i don't think the bill of rights honestly ever was intended to apply to the states i think it was supposed to apply to the federal government so in a way i live in new york right now part of me benefits from this and i like it because i'm like hey uh, there's uh, the the process uh, by which one has to go through the the all the hoops you have to jump through to get an application for concealed carry, and I think it's more in New York City. But uh, those those have been struck down, or to some extent, I'm not sure. I haven't read the whole decision. Uh, so the federal government has now uh, inserted itself, based on the Second Amendment, into uh, this particular area of New York State law, but. Um, This should honestly be a New York state thing. I think I I think a consistent conservative or at least a constitutional conservative um, who believes in original intent would have to say that that that's not an area the Supreme Court should be inserting itself. But uh, it's um, in, in some ways, I guess it's to my advantage as being a New Yorker currently. And so uh, I'm not going to complain too much. But um, but I know that this gets into uh, I mean, we don't like it when the Supreme Court inserts itself into state issues and then uh, pushes the needle to the left, which it most often does. So anyway, that's just my little take on that. But uh, this is what was happening this morning in anticipation of the truly controversial decision uh, that may be rendered soon and uh, as you can see a lot of uh, protesters and some counter protesters there Now, clearly, this is controversial. This is going to be a big deal. This is the kind of thing, honestly, someone told me earlier today that, hey, I have to travel. If this happens today, I'm not going to travel. I'm going to rearrange my plans because there's a fear that there's going to be protesters out there and not just protesters, rioters that will be shutting down roads, uh, burning down buildings, that kind of thing. Now, I don't know what the future holds, but I can understand that sentiment because we've seen that on, um, on other issues. And so uh, this is the temperature in our society right now on this issue, and this could be the big issue uh, for this summer. Now, um, as we uh, look at the evangelical world, uh, you're going to find, uh, at least in the formerly conservative evangelical circles, there's going to be universal admission that one is pro-life. There, people are going to confess this. I am pro-life. What does that mean, though, today? That's the question. What does that mean to be pro-life? Here's what uh, Ron Sider, who was speaking at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Convention for the Southern Baptist Convention in 2016, that's when Russell Moore was heading it up, here's what he said at one of their conferences uh, about being pro-life.
1: But I am certain, That we would be far more successful in persuading others to join us in this important cause if we were widely known as the people who also led the effort to combat poverty which kills millions of people if we were also leading the effort to combat death by smoking if we were also leading the struggle to stop the deadly effects of racism if we were also leading the movement to prevent millions of poor people from dying from the effects of climate change. And if we were also leading the campaign to insist that even murderers are still persons made in the image of God and therefore their lives should be respected even as we protect society from their deadly actions. That kind of completely pro-life movement, I believe, would profoundly reshape American society.
0: So now things like even smoking can be pro-life issues. Now, Ron Sider's been marketing this since the 80s, at least. And I think now it's finally catching on, though, in more evangelical circles. You had uh, the populist movements, the, well, populist movement, the religious right, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, um, Francis Schaeffer. I mean, they were kind of stealing the headlines, and uh, you didn't have people like Ron Sider or Jim Wallace getting all, all the traction. But today... Uh, people are echoing uh, current evangelical leaders, uh, leaders, their sentiments in many ways. Here's one example of that. I want to give you um, a just clip from a very recently uh, uh, shown or or, um, uh, a recently broadcasted, uh, they call it a debate, but it's kind of a debate, kind of a discussion, but it's a uh, debate between Karen Swallow Pryor and Scott Klusendorf. And Karen Swallow Pryor, advocates for this completely pro-life position, here's what she says. Now, she's not as specific uh, in this presentation, perhaps, as Ron Sider was, but in other places she has been, and uh, there are many others in the evangelical world who also have been. And so here's what Karen Swallow uh, Prior has to say about being pro-life. When
2: I came to be pro-life many years ago, it was drilled into me that we were pro-life from womb to tomb. This meant that we opposed not only abortion, but also infanticide and euthanasia, anything that would be a direct physical attack against a human being. But between the womb and the tomb, there are countless ways to breed a culture of death, a spirit that is anti-life and therefore anti-Christ
0: racial conversation as a part of being a pro-life part of the pro-life holistically movement what do you say to that
2: i mean i i think that that's central scott brought up slavery which our country that was the pressing issue for our country um a, a century and a half ago and the, there are obviously huge differences between these two issues but there are some strong parallels so for example um if one were simply against the institution of slavery, um, but not for the image of God of uh, these um, African Americans that were either you know, kidnapped and, and brought here or were um, born here because of earlier kidnappings. Um, if, if we just simply uh, oppose the institution of slavery and set these people free with no care for them, no love, love for them, no concern for what happens next. Um, then we would be in a, the same situation that we're in about abortion if we just want to outlaw abortion and not provide any support. And I think that we are actually seeing some of the results of of opposition to slavery that really wasn't holistic. Um, we're still dealing with those ripple effects today.
0: And you can see right there how she tries to use uh, the uh, chattel slavery issue from the 19th century as a way to convince people that current uh, other issues uh, like racial justice issues today are also related to or categorized as a pro-life issue. Now, I, I've been pretty clear on this, I think, um, over the last few years as I podcasted, I believe the pro-life movement, its intention, at least in its popular form, the form I'm I recognize, the form that has marched in Washington every year, is specifically about murder. It's about The fact that the government of the United States allows murder to take place without any consequences in certain circumstances. Now, on the state level, there are some places where euthanasia uh, is also legalized, and I think that would certainly qualify. Um, But broadly speaking, on a national level, at this point, as I'm recording this, abortion for the unborn uh, killing their them, ending their lives, ending the lives of human beings in sometimes even horrific ways. Uh, this has been legal. No one's going to arrest you if you do these things. Uh, this is a, an acceptable thing, and so that's why uh, there has been a, a march on Washington. That's why there's a pro life movement. That's why, uh, and, and I, I know there was an abolitionist, abortion abolitionist, who told me don't don't use that word pro life. And so I'm trying to, I'm I'm using it because some of the pro life people use it about themselves, but. Um, we can call it anti-abortion movement, really, if we if we want to call it that, because the pro-life industry has become so much more than just anti-abortion, as demonstrated even in these videos. But I always grew up thinking, and I think most of us, uh, what even got us involved in this was because we oppose abortion. We're anti-abortion, and that's what we meant by pro-life. That's what we thought this was about. Uh, when you start broadening it, you run a risk of a few things. What you do is you you can take the limited resources available to the uh, anti-abortion cause, and now those limited resources are being invested in other areas. Now, it's not that all these other areas are necessarily bad. I think most of them probably are bad. Most of them are coming from socialist or leftist um, understandings, and so now we're putting all these resources into the evangelical immigration table. Russell Moore's made that point for years. Being pro-life means... We have to respect the image of God in the migrants who come here. But translation, uh, we shouldn't have strong border security. We should never deport anyone. We should uh, roll out the red carpet and say, come on in. I mean, this is kind of where things end up going eventually. And, and and so is that pro-life? Well, it's this has nothing to do with murdering someone. This is has everything to do with access to the benefits uh, that would um, be there for someone who is from the United States, was raised here. Uh, they, 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 There's certain benefits that come with that. And it's because our fathers and forefathers sacrificed and built and uh, passed down a legacy. But other people who aren't part of that, who live outside the confines of this country, um, don't have access to those things. And that's not fair in a social justice mindset. That's unequal. So we need to let everyone in. Of course, then your ship sinks because you can't take on that much weight and still remain afloat. So it's, it's impossible. Uh, I mean, how if, you know, your economy tanks and everyone's in poverty, you can't solve poverty. So poverty being a life issue, pro-life issue, um, you know, gun control being a pro-life issue, the death penalty being a pro-life issue. I mean, all these things end up getting somehow factored into the pro-life cause, but um, it's not anti-abortion and it's not anti-murder to to be more um, basic or fundamental here. And that's the issue with the the, this whole thing is is you you take those limited resources you put them in the other areas then you also secondly confuse the issue you confuse things because now you you end up and and we're going to get to this in a second but you end up giving the impression that there's all these other things that are morally equivalent quality of life issues are morally equivalent to murdering and that's just not the case uh eating a cheeseburger and you know killing yourself through what ten thousand cheeseburgers or probably more than that it would take right so you eat 300,000 cheeseburgers and eventually you have a heart attack and you die. Well, that that's bad because you died from it. Well, that's a lot different than the willful murder of another human being that's sanctioned by law. Uh, being a bad steward of your body, being negligent with your body, uh, those kinds of things, not good. You should treat your body with respect. Uh, we know there's times of feasting, but gluttony, of course, uh, is a sin and there's um, and, and there's lifestyles that are not the healthiest uh however um I mean we are going to do things in life that will cost us our health. Paul poured himself out as a drink offering he got beaten i mean being a christian today uh can can even cause you stress on the job possibly it can cause you uh to be out of a job i mean it, there's could we make the argument that that's pro-life uh, that uh, that we we are um, endangering ourselves by being so actively Christian that we need to cut down the stress because that's going to take away years of our lives or so. I mean, you could get into convoluted areas like this and it's just silly. Hopefully people see that this is silly. Uh, we that's much different than murder than actually willfully ending someone's life than than uh, taking an action. Take, putting yourself yourself in the seat of God and in an unjustified way. Uh, not, we're not talking about military defense. We're not talking about the police work or anything like that. We're not talking about defending yourself when someone comes into your house to rob you. We're talking about actively murdering someone. And generally, it's for the sake of convenience, selfish lifestyles. And that is what has motivated uh, millions of Americans to oppose abortion. And if we just say, well, yeah, that's just like uh, police shootings or something like that, um, we, we are minimizing the, the extent to it. I mean, look, police shootings aren't, it's not legal for a policeman to have a racially motivated shooting or something like that or a police department to ha- have racially motivated shootings. There's, there's no Supreme Court decision saying that that is protected. That's a huge difference right there. And there's a lot of other differences too, but that, that right there is a huge, huge one. So anyway, we, we confuse things. And I think what we do is we take young pro-life individuals, people raised in these homes where they were against abortion, and now they are being corralled in the arms of social justice activists because they somehow think, well, that's the same thing. No, it's not. It's not the same thing. And uh, there, are, there might be some causes we can get behind that are quality of life issues, but they don't approach the legalized, sanctioned murder that exists in our country right now, and that's the issue. So, uh, so, so this is the other, the other thing. Now, um, here's the moral equivalency stuff, though. I'll show you a little bit of that. Uh, let's play this clip. This is from Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith, of course, made a, an appearance on the podcast uh, a few days ago because he was the one who was saying that Trump voters in the Southern Baptist Convention were, and in his, he picked some some colorful language. He called them "whores." He he said this about it publicly. Um, about uh, he says it was a private conversation. It was at a pu- public nine marks event at the Southern Baptist Convention. Kevin Smith is on all kinds of boards. I think he's on the board for the ERLC right now, if I'm not mistaken. He was the Maryland Delaware uh, State Convention um, uh, President. He he's very active and high up in the Southern Baptist Convention and. And he said this. Well, here's what he said in 2020 in the presence of Al Mohler and a bunch of others. Danny Akin was there. And and this is what he says about abortion and uh, racial insensitivity.
3: It is fine to say the most important thing for me is the life of an unborn baby. But I think it's also biblically fine for me to say the most important for me is politicians who don't call me the N word uh, and don't think I'm the N word. So, I mean, I think both of those, you you can't say, well, one is more image of God than the other. No, you can't. And so we need a little bit of liberty in how we come into these discussions of politics because they they don't have exegetical definites, and we need to act like that's the case.
0: Now, his sentiment isn't any different than uh, a number of other sentiments you can find in evangelicalism today. David Platt wrote a a book uh, called Before You Vote. I think it was in 2020, and he said that i'll just quote him he said now let's consider christian z she weighs biblical clarity on abortion just as christian y does but when christian z considers the practical consequences on this issue while she desperately wants to save children in the womb she doesn't believe voting for a republican candidate will change the law of the land of course now we're seeing voting for a republican candidate actually did uh, give the opportunity to appoint supreme court justices that are now making the possible decision to end roe v wade but i do digress here um, in fact, based on the history, Christian Z is suspicious of the idea that a Republican candidate will be able to stop abortion. She believes that even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, the issue might still go back to the states where locations that already have a high number of abortions will continue to perform them. So she weighs the practical consequences of voting for either a Republican or Democrat candidate much lower than Christian Y does on the issue of abortion. This is page 61 to 62 on of his book, Before You Vote. Now, David Platt, in context here is making a moral equivalent argument with someone christian um y, uh is uh let's see christian z rather uh is more on the left and racial justice and these things motivate her so she's going to vote for a democrat that matches her beliefs because she thinks well a republican isn't going to get it done anyway on the abortion issue and there's other issues that are more important that maybe something can be done about and, and, and so it's perfectly fine in David Platt's mind to use this logic. Now, obviously, the current situation is showing this logic is flawed, that actually voting for Republicans uh, can make a difference in this, uh, not just Republicans, though, but Republicans who act- actually care about appointing good judges who will uh, define a rule according to what the Constitution states and not uh, necessarily are beholden to um, the kinds of precedents that have been passed down over the last 50 years. That are not originalists. So if you if you appoint good Supreme Court justices, if you are active in your opposition to abortion, then it does make a difference. So that that's flawed here. But you know, secondly, you're also sh- telling people that you can vote for someone whose moral compass is this broken uh, when you have the option of voting for someone who doesn't have a morally broken compass. Yeah, you have, you have someone who's pro-life uh, or anti-abortion, we'll use that term, and they um, and you're going to assume that, well, actually, the person who is okay with murdering children is going has the moral upper hand for pragmatic reasons, because they can get more done. That It makes no sense in my mind. It just, it, it does, it, like, both, if you, it'd be one thing if you had, like, two people, let's say you had Giuliani running as a Republican against a Democrat who is pro-abortion. Now you have two pro-abortion candidates, let's say, and you know, maybe you, you could do, you're right in third party, or if you you want to vote for the candidate you think is going to win, then I could see someone trying to make the case, well, this Giuliani might be a little better because even though he's got a morally broken compass on this, he, he gets a few other things right, maybe. But you're not even talking about that. You are talking about a situation where you have a pro-life or anti-abortion candidate running against someone who's pro-abortion. And David Platt justifies voting for the pro-abortion candidate because, of, of practical, pragmatic reasons. Uh, what makes you think that the person who's for murder or okay with it is has, is, has a leg up morally? You want to vote for someone who's qualified. And we haven't had a lot of those lately. We're, we're doing our best with the most qualified. I guess we can, but um, it, it's been pretty dismal out there. And so uh, anyway, David Platt is contributing to that by giving people the justification in the church to vote for Democrat candidates who are in favor of abortion. Um, so that's, that's the other issue here, uh, is this whole idea of moral equivalency. And now, um, so we have holistic pro-life, we have moral equivalency. This is the one, though, that seems to be, especially last week, tearing the Southern Baptist Convention apart a little bit, and it's the idea of the mother's culpability, The mother's culpability if a mother opts to go get an abortion is she culpable or liable for that can she be punished should she be punished by the civil magistrate here's what al moeller said uh and i want to start actually let's not start with al moeller let's start here this is in 2021 this is just last year at the southern baptist convention here's what the resolutions committee uh, chair had to say
3: on the final resolved section I would like to strike the words saying love, care for, and minister to women who are victimized by the unjust abortion industry and replace with preach the gospel and urge repentance from all men and women guilty or complicit in the sin of abortion. Is there a second? Second, do you wish to speak to your amendment? Yes, Mr. President. I think that the language, I first of all, I should say, I'm grateful for the refutation of the Hyatt Amendment, which is extremely unjust and wicked. But I do think the final resolved language interferes with the gospel by softening sin and therefore eliminating the ability of the law to tutor the need for confession and repentance. Let me be clear, women who obtain abortions, although their situation may be tragic and horrible, they are, by the law, murderers, and therefore should seek repentance, and we should not be so arrogant to presume that their circumstance excuses their need for salvation from their sins.
4: I share your passion for ending the moral scourge of abortion. And pardon me if I get emotional talking about this. I've spent a great portion of my life sitting in small rooms counseling women in a Christian pregnancy center in my hometown of Dothan, Alabama. It's called Wiregrass Hope Group. Before I entered into that task, I would have been very tempted to adopt language more in line with what you just proposed. And so I I sympathize with the, the position that you hold. However, what the Lord has shown me sitting in those rooms across from broken women is that so many of them have been victimized by the sin of others, by generational sin, by parents who never took them to church and preached the gospel to them the way mine did to me. And yes, abortion is sin. And one of the things we impart to those women when we love them, care for them, and minister to them is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the truth about the sin of abortion, and we do call them to repentance. But I am also telling you that when we take a punitive, and hard-hearted position toward women who are at a crossroads that usually a whole lot of people's sin brought them to we are not having the mind of christ toward those women
0: now let's fast forward a little bit and let's talk about uh, what happened this year with this particular issue because it came up again and you had Brent Leatherwood, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, and getting he, he has a similar uh, question. And, um, and first I'll read you a tweet from him. This is in May. Uh, he is responding to someone on Twitter, and he talks about a—and I talked about this on the podcast—this uh, was the Louisiana uh, pr- pro-life anti-abortion law that they were passing— and he joined with 70 other leaders in the pro-life movement, he says, to, and wrote to all state legislators across the country, not just Louisiana, but he said, here's the gist, ban abortion, save lives, protect mothers, go after abortionists. And of course, we went deep into this and showed that actually, they were trying to take some of the teeth out of this bill. And one of their main concerns was we can't, we can't treat, if we treat abortion as murder, which is all the bill really did, that it's going to be it's now categorized as murder, that that immediately kicks in that you could have mothers that are going to be in trouble uh, who, who, have, who opt to get abortions. And so they oppose it. Well, here's what you have him saying from the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention just last week on this very topic.
5: The reality, you're not going to get me to say that I want to throw mothers behind bars. That's not the view of this entity. That is not the view of this convention. It is not the view of the pro-life movement. That was proven yet again today. I believe the same principles that Jesus used in John 4 and John 8 apply right here. Maybe instead of rushing in like a mob, we instead rush in with the truth given to us by the author of life, showing we are able to bear the burdens of others and offer the healing that comes with grace, just as has been poured out for us.
0: So I don't think this comes as any surprise to most of us. Uh, we also have the ERLC. Uh, they have a conference. You can see it here, uniting to make abortion unnecessary. That's the conference uh, they have coming up. They were advertising it last week. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Convention, convention of which uh, Leatherwood is uh, over, is having this weird wording for their uh, their convention their their conference, making abortion unnecessary. Right, and uh, they don't say illegal. Now I think they probably have articles about this but the, the what the first the, the foot forward that they're choosing to step forward with is the wording unnecessary and th- this of course uh, in more liberal circles like mainline denominations uh th- this would be something that would unite uh pro life quote unquote with pro choice people cuz there's a lot of quote, quote pro choice people who want to make abortion unnecessary they just don't want to make it illegal so this just broadened, and like I said, it, the pro-life movement is getting diluted, it's getting broadened, it's, it's under attack, and I don't think people realize to what extent uh, it is under attack. Now Al Mohler's changed his position on this thing, on this issue to some extent. You can hear this, I'm going to play two clips in a row, one is from 2016, this is right after Donald Trump, actually Donald Trump made the statement that he thought mothers who opted to get an abortion should be punished. Imagine that. Donald Trump had better moral reasoning in many ways than a lot of the uh, Southern Baptists out there. And because it, it just makes sense. Logically, if murder is murder, you, you the person who is in charge of the army and says charge uh, to the soldiers is just as um, as morally responsible as the soldiers who are doing the shooting. In fact, the, the argument generally is that the soldiers are just obeying orders, right? I'm just obeying orders. Where do those orders come from? Well, if there's a, a woman going into an abortion clinic, and this is, I mean, obviously there's pressure sometimes. I have sympathy for this. There's, uh, I really do. There, there's uh, horrible situations, confusing moral situations where you have boyfriends and sometimes parents and mothers, most especially, it seems, giving advice, uh, pressuring them to go get an abortion. And they're confused, and I mean, that's a horrible situation. But we all, deep down, know murder's wrong. We all have a law in our hearts that God's put there, and to go against your conscience and to go ahead and go do it anyway is evil. Here's the thing, though: God offers forgiveness for that. That's what Jesus came for. Uh, and and who out there has not hated in some way? We've all committed murder in our hearts to some extent. It's not the same as murdering. I'm not saying it it is the same uh, in the, in the sense uh, you know it's not as there, there's other hoops you jump through to go to the point of actually killing another baby, but, or, or human, but, uh, but this is something that's common to man. And so you confess it and you move on. The Lord forgives you of these kinds of things. You, you confess that and you never do it again. You, you go and sin no more. But, um, and, and, and so that's a beautiful thing. Christianity offers that other religions do not. Uh, you don't have to pay for your sin. Jesus paid for it. Just repent and put your faith in him. But, uh, it doesn't get you off the hook morally as far as if there are legal penalties associated with this. I mean, you, you that's in the jurisdiction of the uh, civil government. And so you have to go and um, you have to make sure, well, you, you deserve punishment for that. That's The government does not bear the sword in vain. Now, Al Mohler um, made, made some statements in 2016 after Donald Trump said this that basically contradicted Donald Trump on this, that, well, the mother's not the one that's actually doing it, then he kind of changes a little bit, which is very typical for Al Mohler. Al Mohler does this on a lot of things. If you haven't noticed, if you've been paying attention over the years, Al Mohler tends to play both sides of issues, switch positions, give kind of vague answers, a lot of word salads. And uh, he he's done this on critical race theory like crazy. <laughs> he's just pushed so many elements of it and then uh, how oh, I'm not, you know, for, for that. And, and, um, he's done this on the COVID narrative to some extent. He's done this, um, I'm trying to think what else There's actually, a, I know there's a bunch of stuff out there that he's taking different positions on, but anyway, this is one of them. So, uh, here's Al Mohler in 2016. And then right after that Al Moeller uh, just last week, but here's where the pro-life movement returns back to say, who is the guilty party in an abortion?
5: It is the person who brings about the death of the child. The woman seeking the abortion is not without moral responsibility, but she is not herself bringing about the death of the unborn human baby. That's the crucial issue here, and that's why the pro-life movement has consistently sought to criminalize abortion at the level of the person performing the abortion. That is, unlike what Nicholas Kristof argues here, a morally consistent argument, and it has been consistent over time. I understand what you're asking, and we understand homicide is the death or the killing of a human being an unborn baby i believe from the moment of conception until natural death is a human being deserving of that protection the law has means of making discernments and distinctions in agency and that means moral responsibility and in context how we make that apply in a question of abortion where Even in terms of, of say, a miscarriage, things may be difficult sometimes medically to define. I believe the law is capable of making those distinctions. In the same way, we have different degrees of murder. We have different kinds of indictments possible in criminal charges. So in other words, I believe that there are many cases in which demonstrably there is not just an abortionist who should face criminal consequences, but a woman seeking an abortion. So that is something that we believe the law should pursue. We also understand that that is not something that is likely to come in all 50 states.
0: In- so that's Al Mohler's position. This brings us to Bart Barber on the culpability, mother's culpability. I have talked about this in uh, the episode yesterday. But Bart Barber, long story short, says that in an abortion clinic, the mother is never the one doing the killing and is often also not the one doing the hiring. Abortions are sometimes paid for by other parties. So a mother who walks into a, a clinic and opts to get this procedure done uh, is not um, the one doing the killing. And this is cons- more consistent with Al Mohler's position from 2016. And so uh, this is, I, I would say Bart Barber is part of this uh, part. I mean, he, he has this whole thread on incrementalism and and how great it is. And he's definitely against the abolitionist stuff. And He's in line with, I think, the effort to uh, that's been happening now at least over a decade in evangelical circles. Uh, this effort to kind of, um, well, it's 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 really actually over a decade now that I think about it. I mean, this has been this has been perhaps I think abolitionists would say this is probably one of the historic flaws of the pro life movement is that they didn't want to take a public stand on this. But I think um, what, what I really want to say is that this. Uh, this obstinance or this this uh, stubbornness on this issue, this willing to to stick up for this issue of you know, women are not morally culpable, women are not the ones doing the killing, women are off the hook, mothers who do this uh, are not responsible. Th- this kind of rhetoric, though, I think is being amped up, and that's what I really want to say. In the last five, six years, that rhetoric has been amped up quite a bit more. We're for the mothers, we're pro-mothers, uh, and... There's a big resistance to now the uh, more conservative, I would say, wing of the anti-abortion movement that's trying to be consistent about this. Say, look, uh, murder is murder. Th- this is wrong. Uh, God's law is very clear on this. And you know, if, if you're paying someone to do it, then it doesn't make you—you're still morally culpable. Uh, so is the person that is doing the procedure. And um, but you, and and perhaps you know in in the case of someone let's say let me just give you a scenario if it's a a, a, a um thirteen year old and she's being pressured by her mom and she's she's the one that she's driven to the clinic by her mom and told to do this and normally children right you know obey your parents and the abortion the abortionist does his his, his deed uh, and and it's over with and. Um, and, and this has happened, there is still a consent that that 13-year-old must have in order to allow that procedure to take place. So I th- there's still some moral culpability there. Is it as much as, let's say, the 27-year-old who is a prostitute, and no one's driven her there, she's going in, and she's this is the third one she's having, and that's a lot different. And I think we can parse that out and make distinctions in what the penalties for these kinds of things would be. Uh, but, uh, and, and of course, you know, the mother who's pressuring this, I think that that's, you're an accessory now. <laughs> so there, there's going to be, I think, distinctions that we can make. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't take away the fact that you are, you, you are part of a murder scenario here. You, uh, I think the, the term murderer is a fine term to use for someone who actually uh, and and that's, this is seen as really hard and cold by some. I, in fact, I can think of people high up uh, in conservative evangelicalism, like uh, on you know staunchly against social justice and all that, and they think that this is the death knell of the, their position uh, on uh, anti-abortion. And they don't—they really—they're—they're they're afraid of abolitionists. They're afraid of, or just people who are don't don't take that title, but they're just strongly anti-abortion and want to be consistent on this. I, I think that we just follow God's law and we don't uh, have to apologize for God's law ever and if that makes if that's unpopular, then so be it. you know it doesn't really matter. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your comments in the info section, but um, to, to say that they there to insinuate I guess that there really isn't a culpability here, or there isn't a responsibility here or that, that there shouldn't be a punishment there. Uh, just because well you're not the one that actually has the knife in your hand you're just well you're just asking the person with the knife to do their thing uh that that's just a morally broken compass and and it, we wouldn't apply this to any other area we wouldn't apply this to uh you know someone who's in a mob and pays another guy to go to a hit job on someone we'd say well they weren't the ones that uh, actually took part in the hit job they were they were just ordering it, but they didn't actually do it. I mean, that would seem silly to us. We would laugh that out of the room, hopefully. Say, uh, yeah, that person also wouldn't be doing it unless you were the one that went to them and asked them to do it. And so we wouldn't apply this in any other area, but for some reason in this area, there's a lot of resistance to it. And that's why, part of the reason why I um, I was thinking, I, didn't, I don't know if I was gonna add this, but I think I have enough time. This was part of the reason I, I don't quite understand. And I say this from a place of great respect, Uh, but also great frustration. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm very frustrated with this. I don't understand when conservatives uh, say things like this.
6: Bart Barber's president. You know, pray for Bart. Uh, Bart, I like Bart. We've been friends for years. In fact, I just... uh, I sent him a message last night. I was going through some old messages on Facebook, which people message me on Facebook. I never check it. I just, mm-hmm. I don't do that. And so I'll find things five years, some of them 10 years old, people saying, hey, you know, well, okay, that ship's passed, but I appreciate the effort <laughs> to communicate. I just don't pay attention to uh, Messenger. But I was going through stuff last night and I found an exchange of messages that he and I had back in 2018 before the convention. And I was actually encouraging him to run for president. In 2018, I said, I will back you Mm -hmm. if you run for president in 2018 because uh, the options at that point were J.D. Greer and Ken Hemphill, I think, maybe had uh, announced. I'm not sure. But anyway, the writing on the wall for me as I was looking at the landscape back then was, man, you know, would love to have Bart. uh, uh, He would be a better option than yeah. what we wound up with in 2018. So and, that was funny.
7: And I think that he still will be a better option oh, yeah. than no, Greer and, and Litton. I think absolutely. That, I think, you know, I told him, I think he's a man of integrity, and I, I think that's too. what the convention needs right now, although we don't see things the same way. And Right. And, um, but, you know, continue to pray for him. Yeah, the absolutely. use him in this office. Yeah, I do
6: pray for him. My wife and I uh, got to know him and Tracy and uh, Robin and Kathy Hathaway. Through the event in Keller, Texas, where they had a little panel for all of the uh, candidates at that time, and uh, it was just wonderful. You know, just having fellowship with them, and I'd never met Robin and Kathy, and so that was neat. We had some common connections and relationships, so that was really fun to. Uh, even we've been following up on that and uh, communicating with each other. But I've known Bart for years. I don't know that I ever met Tracy before, but again, you just realize, okay, these are these are real people. He's a faithful Southern Baptist pastor. He's mm-hmm. been at his church a long time. He's trying to do a faithful job shepherding God's people. And so he deserves our prayers. And mm-hmm. so we, Don and I have been praying for them uh, ever since we had that time with them. And it's been a wonderful thing for us to pray about. I'd encourage everyone to pray for Bart. He's got a lot of responsibilities and opportunities, and mm-hmm. he's going to need wisdom from on high. And he's going to need God's spirit to guide him and to protect him and help him. And also to carry on his regular responsibilities as a pastor. So it's a right thing to pray for. Yeah.
7: And you know, one other uh, high point of the convention that I didn't mention, and I think is a good sign is, you know, Bart chaired the resolutions committee this year. Um, And we had nine resolutions, uh, some of them good, some of them really not good. Um, But when we got towards the end, we were running out of time. Bart asked the, the platform if we could have an extra 10 minutes and he said we'll go we're, we'll forego these other resolutions that we wanted to bring out just so we can have some debate from the mm-hmm. floor bringing out resolutions that the committee did not bring out yeah. and so he gave the floor opportunity to make their voices heard and I thought I thought that was really fair I thought that was a that was a class act
6: movement. yeah me too and I think that will that's indicative I think of how he will try uh, to do things so uh, that was yeah that was an unusual thing in terms of how that committee has functioned in recent years yeah
0: you think about Bart Barber, everything that I said yesterday, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, clueless on social justice, broadly speaking, uh, on the gun issue, convoluted, on abortion, uh, I just read you what he said about uh, th- that in regards to culpability of, of the mother, on um, the issue of uh, SSA, uh, same-sex attraction, um, homosexuality without acting on it, whether it's a sin or not, again, convoluted on that issue. Uh, on uh, critical race theory, I mean, he uh, joined in and condemned First Baptist Church of Naples members who voted against Marcus Hayes as, and condemned them as, as racist when they weren't. On uh, plagiarism, uh, this is a guy who uh, said that basically God is plagiarizing, that Mark took Peter's account, that's plagiarism, ran cover for Ed Litton, Specifically, I mean, just indefensible kind of cover. It's just it it, it staggers the imagination. The resolutions committee that he chaired uh, declined a resolution against plagiarism. Uh, He's uh, his reaction to COVID. Although he didn't take federal money from the government, he still uh, ended up being pro lockdown. He ended up being um, at least initially. Uh, he uh, for the vaccine mandate in the International Mission Board. This is why people came home from being missionaries, a lot of them. You know, they didn't want to be have that mandate, even if they didn't have to have it. Bar- barber's for that kind of thing. Uh, he defended uh, Rick Warren um, indirectly by trying to insinuate or claim that Rick Warren was advocating religious liberty for Muslims. I mean, Rick Warren advocates a version of Chrislam, really, but... But Bart Barber, at the moment, Rick Warren's on the ropes for his advocating female pastors. Bart Barber's got to jump in and bring up something else to defend Rick Warren by. Uh, He's defended the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission when they've been on the ropes because of the George Soros money that has uh, uh, gone into their efforts. Uh, He's, uh, in fact, just this morning, I was looking at a tweet. I'll read it to you. This is from February 21st of this year. He says, um, he, he's asking someone on Twitter uh, who's making a claim. Uh, it, it's, it's something Lee Brand, who's a conservative, who is vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, up until, I think, the last week. Bart Barber asks um, uh, about a quote that, that he made, and he says, Can you show me direct quotes of how the SBC leadership has devalued the words sufficiency, reconciliation, and the gospel, or and gospel? And in the whole thread on Twitter is that there's a drift in the SBC, which Bart Barber denies, and that we see these issues being devalued. And he's saying, where is it, basically? I don't see it. And I have to just wonder, you know, what kind of tunnel vision do you have to have to not see that the gospel has been completely devalued and watered down when 866 things become gospel issues? Black Lives Matter is a gospel issue, said the president of the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago. Um, when you, know, you have gospel above all as your, your theme, and yet so much of what's talked about isn't even the gospel. It's all these other social issues, just like the Just Gospel Conference is anything but just the gospel. And you have so many Southern Baptists at high levels claiming that others have just a partial gospel or a half gospel because it doesn't involve some kind of social justice work or something. If Bart Barber can't see any of this, and I've gone to great pains to outline this, to to show you where this is. Over the course of many podcasts, It's a lot of it's in my book, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. You can go get that, and there's plenty of receipts there. Uh, if he can't see that, and he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know why in the world that would be—we would look at this and say, well, I mean, it, it's, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's better than it could be. Uh, it's, it's it's certainly better than a J.D. Greer, I guess, or an Ed Litton, and so it's only you almost get the impression that this could be a step in the right direction. It's just not a big enough step. I mean, I I, I wanted Tom Askell to win. If the, if someone's going to win that, I, I encouraged you on this podcast. If you're still in the SBC, and by the way, if you want to stay in the SBC, you, you know you you can give as little as fourteen dollars a year to remain in. And and I know most pastors that I've talked to, I don't think are interested in in that as much, just because they think. Why am I giving fourteen dollars a year to, to an organization when, uh, and then going out for a convention for the big headache that is and the and the expense that is? When I just want to support missions and uh, you know that's I can't really argue with that. That's up to your conscience. But if you want to stay in the SBC and you want to give the fourteen dollars a year and you want to go out uh, to the different uh, con- conventions uh, and try to fight, uh, then, you know, then do it, have your exit strategy. If, if you know, have have some kind of a, um, a moment where you, you think, where you say to yourself, if this doesn't happen by this time, then we need to get out. I would have, I would have that in, in hand have that ultimatum. But, um, but if that's what you want to do, that's fine. I'm I'm not trying to, uh, c- condemn anyone for t- staying in and, and fighting, but you gotta fight. You have to fight and you have to do it with all your might and then when it if it doesn't work out you gotta you you, you can't waste the the Lord's resources that's my conviction on that uh, but anyway uh, y- you can um, yeah I, I support Tom Askell uh, for churches that were still in that but but then to hear this honestly it, it is um, with all due respect and, and there is respect there because it takes a lot to run but it, that, that this is discouraging to me. You have guys that went out uh, and took out reverse mortgages on their homes and ate into their church budget for more than a year in order to, from little bitty churches, to afford to fly out to California to get a hotel, possibly a rental car, and to then go through a headache. <laughs> and hopefully they got some encouragement, but that's, it's a big sacrifice. And then to, to, to minimize it, it, that's what how it feels, I think. It comes across as a minimizing of that, that... It, things really, it, it was more of a head cold and less of a f- stage four cancer. And uh, so that that's that's how I'm hearing it. Now, if you're hearing something different, then please let me know. But this is, I don't think Bart Barber's election is, th- this is not a good sign at all for the Southern Baptist Convention, if anything. Uh, this is, in some ways, this is more discouraging than the last two years to, to me, if you're a Southern Baptist, because this is a guy who, and I just went through a bunch of issues with you. This is a guy that seems to demonstrate that he where where are his principles? He he runs all over the place. He's vague. He's he comes across as incompetent, as unknowing. At least some of these other guys, at least like Lytton and Greer, seem to be, they they would dig their heels in and be pretty consistent on the wrong things sometimes. <laughs> having someone who's more unpr- unprincipled, having someone who um is it it seems to just defend the people who are influential or in power um let me uh, i don't know if i can do it this podcast i'm I'm really getting off track of what i wanted to talk about i want there's a bunch of pictures that i was going to show you of just the silliness after the convention bart Barber at disneyland with his wizards hat and you know uh steve gaines taking a picture and hey this is uh (laughs) the new president of the southern baptist convention it just there was there was a bunch of those kinds of things, really goofy, silly pictures that Bart Barber was liking and retweeting, and just I'm like this is, this is like sad to me because because at least you had some progressive-minded people who were a little more serious. Uh, that, that there was some uh, there was a modicum of, I don't know, um, just it, it was adults more so. And and you know Greer was more of a youth pastor, but I mean it's bec- it's just the the bar keeps lowering. There's just no not any dignity anymore. And and Bart Barber is probably one of the biggest examples of that I've ever seen. So um, I I only bring that up just to inform you all out there who are following this kind of thing in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think that we need to um, or or you need to if you're in the SBC, kind of evaluate who are the leaders you want to follow in this convention? What do you want to do for next year? Uh, and, and I realize most of this podcast was about the pro-life and, or anti-abortion stuff and how that's being diluted, and I'll circle back to it. But um, I just do want to say that if, if there's a serious effort to actually take back the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it's going to come from first laymen and pastors who are willing to take back their local churches. It'll be, that, that'll be the first sign that there's a real effort underway. Secondly, I think it's going to be someone who is willing to run and go scorched earth, basically. To, to be like the Apostle Paul, I know that's a novel idea, but to, to be like Jesus, to really call these people out for who they are. Bar- Barbara, you're corrupt. <laughs> you're just corrupt. You, you switch positions or you, you, you defend the indefensible when it's someone who's powerful in your club. I mean, you don't have good moral reasoning. you are uh, It's a buffoon at this point. It's a buffoon convention because of the way that you're acting. We have to have someone who's willing to say that kind of thing. You you don't seem to even be understand or realize the false teaching happening at your seminaries. And by the way, let's name some false teachers right now. You know what, Jarvis Williams, that's a false teacher right now being protected at Southern Seminary. Walter Strickland, false teacher being protected at Southeastern. And if we can't say this, then we can't say false teacher. If we have to say brother and treat them like that, then it's doomed to fail any effort. I, don't, I just don't see how God would bless that kind of an effort. Um, I think uh, you know, call, calling out people, calling even the opposing the Peters out there. If there's a Peter who's uh, being confusing on what the gospel is because they're covering for false teachers, confront that person to their face. Don't be afraid to do it publicly. Don't be afraid to write about it. We need some fearless leadership that's convictional and bold. And it's going to take someone, I think, that's probably, um, it's, not going to, it's not going to be your typical year If that's if there's going to be a win for conservatives. It's going to be like a Trump kind of scenario where, and I don't mean morally Trump's character, I mean like a drain the swamp campaign coming from an outsider. Who can somehow electrify the base of conservatives and motivate them to sacrifice to show up? And it, I think that 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 window is probably closed, but maybe not. Maybe maybe if there's someone that's actually willing to really not pull the punches, but really uh, for the glory of the Lord, for um, for for His kingdom, and for for the love of Jesus Christ, to go out there and to risk being uh, having bad relationships, perhaps with uh, or or having uh, the, the c- condemnation of really false teachers and those covering for them in your denomination, then so be it. But that's that's what we need is someone who's not worried about that kind of a thing. And maybe there's someone in the earshot of my voice who's listening and hasn't considered doing that. They're, you're remaining in the convention and you thought, well, I, I haven't considered running. Well, maybe this is your moment. Maybe that's what you need to do. And maybe it starts soon maybe it starts now start start the campaign early start calling out the things that are wrong start proposing actual solutions and and use the standard of scripture as your uh as as your uh your ultimate authority in this so that you can compare what's happening to what scripture says and uh the lord has a lot to say about unequal weights and measures and hypocrisy and pharisaism and all the things that that are going on so let's let's circle back though to the pro-life thing in summary uh since i just went on a huge rabbit trail that initially i I wasn't sure i was going to go on the the three big things that are i think diluting and threats to the pro-life or anti-abortion movement are number one uh the holistic pro-life approach number two the moral equivalency of taking abortion and then comparing it to some other issue that is not the legalized sanctioned murder of actual people and then making them the same. And then third, I think treating abortion like it's really not quite murder because the people that are involved in it, some of them, are not morally culpable. If we're going to be consistently pro-life and make any headway on this issue of actual murder, then um, we're gonna have to be more. We're gonna have to reject these three options. And if what happens next week that many are anticipating actually happens, if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned, the battle is just starting because it's going to be on the state level, and this is going to be where the real battle is. So you need to be aware that these are the approaches, and you need to be ready for these uh, these approaches when bills are being passed in various states uh, to try to uh, outlaw or reduce or somehow address abortion after this potential decision so we need to be ready for it that's why i primarily wanted to make this podcast hope it was helpful for all of you out there um i had written down some oh i just wanted to make some quick announcement here um i just talked to someone who's helping me edit the holdman mennonite documentary uh that will be hopefully coming out in a uh, i don't know two months three months i I would think but um we're making headway on that Um, i also just scheduled an interview with someone from the IFCA International, which might be an alternative for some of you who have left the Southern Baptist Convention over social justice. IFCA International has taken a stand on it to some extent. And I just want everyone to remember also the discerningchristians.com. That's a place you can go and you can find churches or put your church on. You gotta got be a member, you gotta log in, but put your church on that website so that you can... Um, uh, can uh, find uh, or people can find you, and then you can also find other churches of like mind and faith. It's pretty broad the state the statement. It's just a general Orthodox statement, except for the fact, perhaps, and that we put in some language there uh, against social justice, and we also put some language in there against Darwinian evolution. So, uh, if if that's something that you're looking for, if you're if you can't find a church, you're having a hard time discerning Christians is the place to go and while you're there maybe throw a donation uh, for Craig he's the guy that's really put this website together in his free time and there's a place you can donate there, I'm sure he'd appreciate it he does this all for free because he loves the Lord and uh, thank you for listening to today's podcast, God bless, bye now